This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Happy New Year, Ashley. Happy New Year. How was your How was your time off? Your break? Oh, it was it was nice. Um, like you, there's a little COVID exposure, not for myself, but within the family. So things were a little bit thrown off, but still, still a lovely time. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, recording this from our apartments again. Yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you very much, Omicron. Uh, our office and studio is closed at the moment, so we busted out the remote kit, and I'm talking to you again through a computer screen. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a bummer. Um, but we still but- have a great show. We do have a great show this week. What's going on this week? Our first podcast of 2022. Yeah, so during Signs of the Times, we'll be talking about some Pope Francis-inspired New Year's resolutions and some of our predictions for Catholic stories coming in 2022. And then we're talking with Andrew Lapin, who is the creator and host of the podcast Radioactive, The Father Coughlin Story from Tablet Studios. And I, it, this is a great conversation and a great look into a piece of uh, American and Catholic history that I was pretty in the dark about. Right. So he was a priest in the you know early 20th century, um, and he was really kind of one of the main American demagogues of of that generation. He he took this new media radio, which we didn't really, it was kind of Wild West, and he was able to draw a huge Catholic following and spewed some really toxic ideas. So if that sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, he, he, he gave it to us first. So stick around for our conversation with Andrew. And then finally, I'm up this week on As One Friend Speaks to Another, where I'm going to be talking a bit about what it was like to have COVID over Christmas. So- <laughs> what that did to my spiritual life. Um, But stick around because before we get into any of that, we have a few words from our sponsor. Yes. So Zach, as we've talked about before, we are going to Italy in the new year. Do you know any Italian? You know, I do. I do actually. I studied it in college, but it's been a long time since I kept up with it. I'm sure a a lot of people go through this where if you don't use it, you kind of start to lose it. So I don't have any Italian. I know Spanish and I thought that would translate more to Italian. But when I listen to Pope Francis, I'm not picking up a lot. So I'm I'm very grateful that we have Wondrium, which has an amazing video series called Learning Italian Step-by-Step, Region-by-Region. Yeah, there are so many things we love about this program. It's it's really comprehensive. There's 24 video lessons, um, a companion guidebook, and we really got the full experience. This is almost like you're, you know, you're back in college or back studying abroad, getting the full language immersion. Yeah. The instructor, Christina Olson, is an associate professor of Italian at George Mason University, my home state of Virginia. And she made this very, very fun. Um, you know, I don't particularly want homework at this stage in my life, but this did not feel like homework. No, uh, there's a ton of exercises and games that bring these lessons to life. You, you, my favorite part, I think, was honestly getting the refresher on the different facial expressions and hand gestures that Italians use in daily life, just to kind of that communicating without really saying much that's unique to them. (laughs) So yes, if you're coming to Italy with us, you should definitely do or watch this video series. But if that's not in the cards for you this year, there are so many other mind-blowing courses from Wondrium on subjects from science and history to music and religion, and you can get it in video or audio form. Yeah. And right now, OneDream is offering our listeners a special deal, a free trial offer to celebrate the new year. But you need to sign up through our special URL, which is OneDream.com slash Jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And get your learning on today. So before we get to the rest of the show, Zach, what's on tap today? I thought that it'd be appropriate since it's the new year to have some some bubbly. So I've got some some <laughs> prosecco uh, here at my apartment that I will be corking. It's a mini bottle, so there's no cork actually. So yeah. I, I could, that's <laughs> anticlimactic. Little, yeah, uh, the audio, but nonetheless, it is open now. It is bubbly. It is bubbly. All right. All right. Well, cheers to the new year to yeah. twenty. Another year of podcasting. This yes. our fifth year. Cheers. Cheers.
All right, and now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What do we have this week, Zach? So while we weren't podcasting the last couple of weeks, you were writing, um, you and our colleague uh, Molly Cahill put together a a list of Pope Francis-inspired New Year's resolutions. We sure did. So one of the great parts of our job is that we get to pay attention to Pope Francis's like weekly homilies and general audience addresses. And he has a lot of um, challenging, fun, <laughs> quirky quotes. And going back through those over the overall of 2021 was a lot of fun. And it gave us ideas for New Year's resolutions. So one of them that I took to heart was uh, stop judging. Uh, Pope Francis said, quote, how easy it is to criticize others, but there are people who seem to have a degree in gossip each and every day. They criticize others. Take a look at yourself instead. Yeah, he he really is anti-gossip, yeah. which I guess is not surprising as be, you know being a spiritual leader. But uh, I think he's right. This is t- this is a tough one to remember. I feel like most of this happens digitally now too. So there's lots of like texting and tweeting and uh, DMing. Oh, yes, and well that so... that gets to our next resolution. <laughs> that's right. Okay, so what was your what was the second one you wanted to pull out? Get off Twitter. So that's a little harsher than maybe. I'm going to do or what Pope Francis was saying, but he is very wary of the role of social media in our lives um, and specifically in the lives of journalists. He says, quote, certain nuances, sensations and well-rounded descriptions can only be conveyed to readers, listeners and spectators if the journalist has listened and seen for him or herself. This means escaping from the tyranny of always being online, on social networks and the web. So I, so, I took that as a personal challenge. <laughs> yeah, and this was in an address to journalists specifically, as you mentioned. But I do think that we can all, journalists or not, be guilty of you know being sucked into a, a reality that is not really real or is real in a in a different way. Um, and we could all do better from spending less time uh, doom scrolling and more time talking. Um, as long as you know we're not spreading droplets of. Omicron to each other in that talking. Um, what yes. is our what? What is the third resolution you wanted to pull out? Once again, you you gave me a perfect opening. <laughs> One of the people Pope Francis wants us to actually talk to are our elderly loved ones. Um, on the World Day of Grandparents and the Elderly, he asked very pointedly, "When was the last time we visited or telephoned an elderly person in order to show our closeness and to benefit from what they have to tell us?" And that was not a rhetorical question. He really wants to know, like, are you calling grandma? <laughs> yeah. And I feel like not just not just grandma, but the Pope is really kind of hammered home that we should have, you know, several intergenerational friendships and relationships in our lives, which I think is is important and not all that common, especially in, in, in Catholic circles. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I missed most when we weren't going to Mass during the pandemic is is those intergenerational connections that the Mass offers. Um, and then the pandemic overall has just created a situation where a lot of elderly and vulnerable people are completely isolated because of this virus. So I think as, as New Year comes and hopefully as Omicron dissipates and everyone's vaccinated and boosted, we can have those in-person meetings with with our loved ones again. Now, that was only three of the resolutions, but you and Molly wrote eight. Um, and th- so we'll link to that and a video that you both were appeared in <laughs> illustrating these eight New Year's resolutions. Yes. All right. So those were the resolutions. And now we have the predictions. And we have, we have a few here. So we're going to kind of go rapid fire through these. What's our first one, Zach? First prediction of 2022 is people will not come back to mass. Wah, wah. <laughs> Which is also, which really is sad, um, and here's what I mean by that: is that churches have started reopening across the pandemic, but attendance has been slow to pick up. Median attendance has dropped by twelve percent over the past eighteen months. Um, I also suspect that that's a bit of an underestimate, um, mm-hmm. just based on what I've seen in my return. Yeah, and talking to priests. No, totally. Like I, I really am trying to get back into being very religious about going every Sunday, which I am uh, admittedly was not great about in 2021. Uh, but so when I went on on Sunday to the usually full 1115 mass at my parish, it was pretty sparse. And maybe that was just because it was a holiday weekend, but the, the trends aren't looking great. No, but the people who uh, are going to mass might find uh, our second prediction 
uh, to be a little bit troublesome, which is that the liturgy wars are going to get UGLY ugly um, in 2022. Um, let me explain why. So you probably heard too much about the Latin mass in 2021 and about the restrictions and the arguments, especially if you were one of those people that was online all the time. Um, well, in 2022, you're going to see more and more dioceses start to implement some of the restrictions that Pope Francis promulgated in 2021. So I guarantee you're going to hear more about that. Yes. Uh, and another story that is not very uplifting, more stories about the church's handling of sex abuse. We've got a few things going on this year. One, there's a report coming out of the Archdiocese of Munich in Germany about how they handled abuse in, in the decades of, of the, you know, the height of that crisis. And that is where uh, Pope Benedict Sixteenth, then Archbishop Joseph Ratzinger was in charge. So that could have implications for his legacy. Uh, we also have the trial for Theodore McCarrick, the disgraced American cardinal. And it's the 20-year anniversary of the spotlight investigation by the Boston Globe that first really broke the sex abuse crisis story in the United States. Yeah. So our f the three that we came up with for stories and predictions for 2022 were not exactly super cheery. Um, so we uh, realized that and went to our colleagues and, you know, asked like, okay, what do you guys think uh, is going to happen? We, we asked in Slack and we got a really helpful thread of things that were a little bit cheery. So um, the first one is that Pope Francis is going to be kicking things into hyperdrive in 2022. Uh, one, because he's getting old. He just turned 85 last month and you know, for context, this is how old Pope Benedict was when he retired. And there hasn't been a Pope this old um, since Pope Leo the 13th in the 19th century. Yeah, that was kind of shocking to learn. We're, we're taking this from our colleague, Jerry O'Connell, our Vatican correspondent, um, his his look ahead to 2022. Uh, but yeah, that was that was fascinating. And he points to several areas where the Pope, despite his age, is going to be taking action. That includes replacing many of the top Vatican officials. A lot of people who head the Vatican congregations are getting to the retirement age. And a lot of those people were not put in place by Pope Francis, and he's going to have the chance to replace them with his own picks. He also is going to have the opportunity to create 10 more cardinals, bringing up the number of people who can vote in the next conclave that were appointed by Pope Francis to 72 out of 120. So a clear majority there. So be sure to watch Pope Francis. You can check out Inside the Vatican for all of that in 2022, but we'll be talking about it here too. Yes. Another story we are sure to talk about is the fate of Roe versus Wade. Uh, the Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks has been in front of the Supreme Court. They did oral arguments in the fall, and they are likely to hand down a decision in June or July. So whichever way that falls, it's going to rock the pro-life movement and American politics in a profound way. Next is that black Americans are on the path to sainthood. Could we actually finally see the first black American saint in the United States? Yeah, a, a group of lay Catholics um, have sent letters to the Vatican uh, advocating for um, the canonization of African American saints because there are none at this point. And, you know, that's there's a real concern about you know, seeing the entire Catholic, U.S. Catholic Church reflected in the, the communion of saints. And America has covered some of these African-American Catholics who are potentially on the road to sainthood. So we'll link to that in the show notes. It's people like Sister Thea Bowman and Pierre Toussaint and other people that maybe you haven't heard of, but have been really influential in the U.S. Catholic Church. And next story, uh, could this be the year that uh, a certain Jesuit school gets over the hump in college basketball? Uh, our colleague Tim Brady predicts that this is the year that Gonzaga will win March Madness and be crowned NCAA basketball champions in the men's tournament. Uh, they're currently in the, the number four seed, or they're number four in the AP poll. So it's looking like they'll be a number one seed. So they will have a path to finally getting over the hump. It's been a tough couple of years for him. So you're you're not going to make the case for loyal Chicago. Look, I, I I'm predicting another Final Four performance, but I, I think we'll stop. All there. right, all right. <laughs> and finally, our colleague James Keane, who is a theology nerd, predicts that liberation theology could make its way into the College of Cardinals when Pope Francis makes Gustavo Gutierrez and John Sabrino cardinals this year. That one seems like a long shot. <laughs> no. I think it's totally possible. Pope Francis is already, you know, 
canonized uh, Oscar Romero, who's been sort of a fundamental person in this movement. And in a couple of weeks, he's going to be beatifying Rutilio Grande. I, I don't think it's too far-fetched that uh, some theologians, uh, theologians often sometimes as they get older are, are put in the College of Cardinals, even though they're past the voting age, as sort of like a, mm-hmm. a, a thank you. So like Avery Dulles, for example. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, is a recognition of their service to the church. So you know, these would be two theological giants that would be very, very fitting of the of the admission into the College of Cardinals. All right. Well, if any of these predictions happen, you will hear about them on Jesuitical and from American Media in 2022. Now stick around for our conversation with Andrew Lapin. Joining us from Ann Arbor is Andrew Lapin. Andrew is the creator and host of the podcast Radioactive, the Father Coughlin story from Tablet Studios. He is an editor at the Jewish Telegraphic Agency and a film critic whose work has appeared in NPR, Vulture, The Economist, The Atlantic, and other places. Welcome to Jesuitical, Andrew. Hello. Uh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. And, and congrats on the podcast. Uh, we're talking to you right now. Um, I think you've got seven episodes out yet, but by the time, I'm not sure when people are going to listen to this, but uh, go back, go into the feed and and and, eat, and you know binge through it because uh, it's it's really really excellent. So congrats. Thanks so much. Yeah, we'll have our eighth and final episode premiering uh, a week from from today. So depending on when listeners listen to it, it will likely. I'll be there. All right. Well, you had a lot of material to work with for this podcast because Father Coughlin was pretty prolific in terms of his audio production. (laughs) Um, So, But a lot of us, I don't think, are that familiar with his story. We don't want to presume our audience knows who this priest is. So we thought we could just start with a little bit of his his biography. Um, So let's start with, with kind of his Early life, he had he had a very unique personality, and how that translated into his call to the priesthood. Yeah, absolutely. So Father Coughlin was was like one of the first major media stars in America, and he sort of found that route through the priesthood. And I call him America's first mass media demagogue because he was really the first person to seize a new method of mass communication. In his case, the radio and uh, use it to sort of communicate to a huge audience fears and prejudices uh, and, and outright lies in order to, to build his own following. So all that started, he was, uh, he was a Canadian immigrant uh, to the U.S. He was born in Hamilton, Ontario. At first, uh, you know, he knew from an early age that he wanted to, uh, to be a priest. He was, you know, his mom sort of groomed him for the priesthood. He entered seminary in, in Canada, um, sort of briefly flirted with joining the Basilian Order, uh, we're talking, this is like 1910s in, when he is in young adulthood until until the Basilians, uh, you know, ask him to to institute a vow of, of poverty and, and he refuses. Um, I, but, I but love that. Seminary... I love that detail, by the way. Right? Like the <laughs> the order only had three three vows at that time. It was um, stability, uh, chastity, okay. obedience, but they didn't have poverty yet. And by the when they added poverty, he was like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. Yep. <laughs> Which sort of gives you an idea of like where his interests were lying, uh-huh. um, even from that early age. But, but yes, he was always an incredibly gifted uh, like public speaker, right? And he um, was known in seminary for like spinning tales out of whole cloth. Um, he would have, uh, you know, his fellow students and his professors alike just sort of hanging on his every word. And so he was really a talent who was just born for the radio, um, which was in its infancy, just as he got an offer. Uh, a very pr- prestigious offer from the uh, Bishop of Detroit at the time to uh, to come to the U.S. and to lead a fledging new uh, Catholic uh, parish in uh, Royal Oak, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit, right around the time when, you know, Detroit is this is this boomtown because of uh, auto production and tons of people are moving to the area. And so the Catholics are really looking to to expand. And so in the mid 20s, when Coughlin gets there, um, the way the, the very unique way he decides that he's going to not only, uh, you know, grow his own parish, but also make a mark for himself is he's going to broadcast his sermons over the radio. Uh, and this is really where all of this starts. Uh, he quickly becomes a, a national radio celebrity. His show gets syndicated uh, across the country. Somewhere around 30 to 40 million people are listening to it every week. Um, so if you start in the 1926 and then moving through 30 to, 40, the 30 to 40 million people. 
in in the 20s, which is like an even greater percentage of the population than it would be today, right? Like that's yeah. I think I read it was like almost a third of, of the U.S. <laughs> population yeah, exactly. listening yeah, exactly. to this priest on the radio. It was a very substantial portion of the country. I mean, this is like you know today our, the media world is so fragmented. It's like any any one news source can only hope to have like a tiny tiny fraction. Even the most popular news source today can only have a tiny tiny fraction of what Father Coughlin's audience was on a weekly basis. And yeah, somewhere around between like a quarter and, and a third of the country were hanging on his every word. And it started with sermons, but then it evolved from there uh, kind of to further his own political ambitions, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, as America is entering the Great Depression, people are out of work. They're looking for some kind of, you know, salve, some kind of like level of, of stability, um, a sense that someone with a platform and, and a degree of power is like fighting for the common man. And this is how Father Coughlin sort of gets involved in politics. You know, he segues like pretty quickly from uh, typical church sermons and like cate cate um, catechisms to uh, like politics. Like he is, he's sort of directly taking on the big political figures of the time. He inserts himself into the presidential election. Uh, he, you know, at first is backing uh, FDR and like records a campaign ad for him um, and then very quickly turns on FDR, uh, you know, after the, the president, the newly elected president um, ignores him. Uh, <laughs> so there's very quickly this we see this this like uh, insatiable ego right on the on the priest's part, um, sort of colliding with this incredible opportunity that he has to insert himself in the national dialogue um, and really like turn his followers for or against whatever political figure he wants. And what are some of the more, I would say, poisonous contents of what he's broadcasting that start to take shape? Yeah. So, you know, my entryway into this story was always uh, Father Coughlin's anti-Semitism, which is sort of uh, the, I think, the, the defining feature of his radio show. Um, his show becomes progressively more anti-Semitic throughout the 1930s. And, uh, me uh, being having grown up in the Detroit area in a uh, today pretty thriving Jewish community, sort of always knew this story that this church that was only like a, a stone's throw from my house uh, was founded and led by, you know, a world famous anti-Semite and that he used his radio show to disseminate these conspiracy theories. So that was always my entry point into the show. And he is he is dabbling in these theories that you know, Jews are both the elite bankers who are responsible for the depression, as well as the driving force behind communism. And so therefore plotting to like erase religion and capitalism from America. This is kind of what he is peddling. And a lot of, uh, you know, the sort of right wing pro fascist figures of his time were selling the same song. And he was, you know, openly supporting people like Mussolini and Hitler once we get to the 30s. And and at that point, how how was the Catholic Church responding to him, both in the United States and at the Vatican? Yeah, that was a really interesting element of this of this research for me. The Catholic Church doesn't really know what to do with him. Um, I mean, I have I have a lot of research that comes from um, this great historian, Charles Gallagher at Boston College. And, you know, he sort of points out that the, the the church's hierarchy, you know, was set up to so that every, you know, the, the local diocese were supposed to be the ones responsible for policing their their priests behavior. And there was no uh, way to respond to a figure like Coughlin, whose popularity like transcended his local parish, like he was like this national figure who seemingly could not be contained. And the church at first really kind of wants to stay out of it. They're not really doing a lot to insist that he that he shut up. Um, it's only as we get into the late 30s, early 40s, when Coughlin's rhetoric becomes really dangerous, when he is sort of getting a, uh, a a paramilitary group to attack Jews on the streets. And when he is tr like really trying to like overthrow the government in like very concrete ways that uh, that the church finally decides, you know what, maybe we should do something about this guy. Um, and so that's that, that that's kind of what happens. But for a good decade, he is kind of doing what he wants. Well, we're speaking a little bit in shorthand here because the church like so the Vatican really kind of did nothing, but he was only able to do this because he had support from his local bishop. Right. I mean, like and presumably millions of Catholics who the church didn't want to 
alienate. Right. It's like, so I, I, I don't know. I don't want to even let us off the hook with saying we did yeah. nothing. We kind of like, I feel like there was a, a far, enabled. fair amount of enabling done yeah. by the by the church at, at, a, at a local level, right? At the local level, absolutely. Um, bishop uh, Michael Gallagher, who was the, the, the bishop of Detroit at the time, was the one who recruited Coughlin to, to first come to, uh, uh, to Detroit and continue to back and support him even as public criticism against him grew. And Gallagher has, in fact, you know, in fact, made several public statements saying that he was he wasn't going to take any action against Coughlin. He presumably was happy with the publicity. Um, Coughlin is also, you know, publishing a national magazine at this point. Um, he is raising a lot of money uh, for the church, right? He sort of pioneers uh, the idea of like a radio funding drive or like a radio membership program. And so like people from all over the country are like sending money to Royal Oak. Um, they're sending him so many letters that the post office has to open a new branch just to support them. So so he's tremendously popular. And the Vatican was certainly afraid on, on like a uh, the level above above the local diocese. The church was certainly afraid of alienating them and of possibly like if they were to, you know, cast Coughlin out, that maybe he would, uh, you know, take his followers elsewhere. Uh, that was that was certainly a legitimate fear. Yeah. So just to kind of like wrap up the biographical part. So when he was at the height of his power and influence and toxicity, did he have any concrete effects on on the political life of the country? You mentioned this paramilitary group. Did did that result in actual violence? And then what was there a tipping point where he could, had a fall from grace? Oh my God! There, then there was the he just like reprinted a speech from Joseph Goebbels, the Hitler's like chief propagandist in English, yeah. and just plagiarized it as under his own name. Correct. I mean, like there. Were, just, so that's just like one. Of the crazy anecdotes that you yeah. you surface in your podcast, but yeah, to Ashley's point. When, when yeah, when did he start to like really lose favor with people in power? Oh yeah, well, so it, this happens around 1936, which is when FDR is running for re-election, and Coughlin has already decided by this point that he kind of hates FDR. He hates um, you know traditional politics. Uh, he's really uh, he sort of fancies himself a revolutionary who's going to stand above it all. Um, and he, he goes after FDR, he starts like a political third party. So this is where we start to see kind of real tangible effects happening. And even though the party peters out pretty quickly after the 36 election, this is really when he becomes emboldened to like lean into the radicals who are following him. And so that paramilitary group that we mentioned, um, it was called the Christian front. It, it comprised, you know, several hundred thousand members nationwide. And these were, you know, people, mostly young men who, uh, were were actually like training to be a part of a militia that uh, was going to overthrow the U.S. government. Um, they said in the name of Christ, uh, they believed that um, any violence that they could take against the government would be justified because the government was overrun by communists in their view. And uh, and so the proper Christian thing to do was to was to oppose that. Um, and they very much took their marching orders from Father Coughlin. He encouraged the growth of this group. He referenced them several times on his show and on his newspaper. And uh, and they were you know, they were they were gathering him like basically sleeper cells and like plotting to uh, attack Jews and Jewish owned businesses. And they had a whole you know plan for how to how they were going to topple the, the U.S. government um, and the FBI, you know, chased after them for for a couple of years. Who in the end sort of put the muzzle on him? Was it the federal government or the Catholic Church? It was a combination. So, uh, you know, Bishop Gallagher, who was his main protector, um, dies in January of 1937, right after Coughlin's political campaign uh, flops. And the new bishop that the church appoints, Ed Mooney, um, is really kind of specifically brought in at first to try to contain Father Coughlin and like sort of put more guardrails on him. And then when that fails to really like bring him down. Um, and so this is happening, right? There's like some more, there's like more increased pressure from the church that sort of builds over a couple of years. Um, at the same time, the FBI, which is this like brand new institution that J. Edgar Hoover starts, um, really is trying to go after people they perceive as seditionists, people who are really sort of against the American Republic. Uh, Father Coughlin is one of the first figures they identify as a, as a potential seditionist. And so the FBI is also trying to bring him down. Um, they're passing new um, they call them anti-sedition broadcasting laws to control the kinds of things that people can say over the air. You know, today we would say this was a First Amendment <laughs> violation. And um, and and so those those factors together, combined with like Coughlin's kind of waning uh, influence in the public sphere, um, Jewish groups becoming more organized and calling him out, um, liberal Christian groups as well, 
uh, and and sort of the the very public invisible face of like his his fandom just being so kind of abhorrent to to polite society. Um, those things together really sort of causes influence to to Crater um, in uh, between uh, 1940 and 1942, which is when he finally goes dark. I'm sure people listening to this might might be hearing some echoes from from our time, you know, demagogic leaders using an emergent medium of communication to reach millions of followers. So I'm wondering, what, <laughs> is that what inspired you to make this podcast now? Or um, was it something more personal about your own connection to Detroit? Yeah, I would say it was. it's probably a little bit of both. Um, I had been sort of like aware of and like vaguely kind of obsessed with Father Coughlin's story since I was uh, a teenager, but then started thinking way more about him Right around 2017, um, when uh, when I was just hearing the word demagogue a lot more in 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 uh, in the public sphere, and I was also hearing a lot of a, a different word, unprecedented, uh, the kinds of things that are happening in the U.S. in America today uh, have never happened in America before, and what's what's going on and what's become of us. I heard that so many times, and I just kept thinking, well, there is there's totally a precedent for this like in in america um and it just seemed to me like father coglin was a story that that people needed to hear about and hear about in like the medium through which he was first uh encountered which is how i hit on uh, podcasts as like the the ideal vehicle for this and what would you say is his legacy among catholics today or even in the years after he's sort of taken off the air because he was he just went back to being he was still a parish priest i mean until he retired which mm-hmm. is just seems crazy to me for decades um yeah for for a good like 24 years i think um he continued to preach at the uh, at the shrine of the little flower um and you know i think his legacy among catholics uh seems to be a fairly complex question from what i've i've encountered um you know i, I will give a shout out to um a local jesuit uh institution the university of detroit mercy which actually took it upon itself to digitize like his archival materials and like present them in a way that sort of properly frames the context for them and explains like why we're why they're bothering to like remember him today um a lot of catholics who i who i've talked to you know are variously like ashamed of him ashamed that he has sort of tarnished the name of of saint therese the the saint that the that the parish is named after um and then you know i've i've spent a good deal of time in the shrine itself where his legacy is is much more complicated they still keep his you know artifacts and and picture kind of on the wall and um they went through a period of several years where they weren't uh really engaging with this history um which seemed to have changed following the uh the tree of life um synagogue shooting in 2018 where we i actually saw you know the the person who was at the time the pastor rector of shrine um start to give very public denunciations of anti-Semitism and really talking about Shrine's historical role and Father Coughlin's historical role in, in perpetuating it. Um, so that was a really interesting thing to notice. But then I would go to the Archdiocese of Detroit to do my research, and the younger employees there would have no clue who Father Coughlin was. Would you prefer him to be lost to history, or do you think it's important for Catholics to to learn about him? That's a good question. Um, Quick follow-up. Do younger Jews know who he is? Oh, not not so much, actually. I mean, in the okay. Detroit in the Detroit area, yes. You know, someone told me, oh, every Jew in Detroit knows where the shrine of the little flower is, right? It's sort of like it, it, I, I sort of open with the podcast with this image of like a ghost story of like sort of a almost like a mythical figure, uh, you know, among us. I mean, I also think that we have a tendency and I'm not just saying this is true of like Catholics and Jews, but like, you know, we tend to think that um, hateful things, hateful people uh, exist elsewhere, you know. There, you know, it's not, it's never us. Um, it's never like anything that we've perpetuated amongst our own communities. And uh, I don't think that's true. And I think especially now when the idea of like how we are looking at our own history has become so hotly politicized, uh, this this feels like the moment to really ask these these deep questions about what have our communities done? How do we work to to move past it and build bridges over it uh, without completely forgetting the lessons of the past. Yeah, I, Catholics are certainly have this tendency to like we 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 go looking for saints in our history, right? And we try to elevate them, and they sort of dominate the even our own historical and cultural understanding of ourselves. And very rarely 
are we willing to go back and look at the the total opposite of those people that had i mean like charles coggle and had a tremendous influence both on the life of the church and the life of the country um it's and, and i and i wonder moving to today a little bit we we have some celebrity priests uh today you know that have taken advantage of social media and the way that algorithms work but they're mostly within catholic circles i think i don't think there's there's very few quote unquote famous catholic priests that sort of enjoy the popularity that someone like Coughlin would do you see a, a worry of this happening again with uh if not a catholic person some type of demagogic figure that appeals to religious fascist language um and sort of steers the country into a ditch yeah i think uh something that you see a lot when you are reading about like the history of fascism over the last century is that fascism and um a sense of kind of like religious supremacy almost always go hand in hand right like there's almost always some kind of mission statement uh like a holy or a heavenly mission statement on the part of uh, authoritarian figures and like people who are who are demagogues who are trying to build that audience that's really the easiest way to do it to like forge um a, that sort of intimate spiritual connection uh with uh with your audience and you know we've we've seen this i think over and over certainly not limiting to to catholics but uh ve very much i think you know religious demagoguery is continuing to be a uh, a major factor in authoritarianism and it's important that we're able to to recognize that when it happens uh, wherever and like in whatever form it takes you know by the way father Coughlin's audience was not just catholics a lot of people listened to him from from various denominations because they saw him as speaking to something powerful and profound that they were not hearing from anywhere else at the time and they took him at his at his word yeah so one thing you hear a lot today and have heard, you know, for decades from American politicians is like this appeal to like the Judeo-Christian foundings of this country. And I think to a lot of people that sounds perfectly innocent and they can't imagine why people would take offense to it. But when you hear it, you hear some of those same themes in Coughlin's speeches and they take on a much more sinister tone and, you know, obviously putting it in direct competition with Jewish people in the country. Um, so I'm wondering, what, what do you hear when you hear those appeals today? And, and do, they, do they worry you? The phrase Judeo-Christian Judeo -Christian values has always sort of made my hair stand on end a little bit because, uh, you know, it almost always means just, just Christian. Or it's like, <laughs> we want to exclude Muslims and we don't want to be accused of being anti-Semitic. Um, and so this, is, this seems like a safe term. You know, even like, I've even seen it applied to like stuff like the war on Christmas uh annual annual culture war you know saying that the war on christmas is an attack on judeo-christian values it's like jews jews don't really <laughs> care about christmas i mean you know we don't we don't see a particular need <laughs> for uh for this uh so you know i it, it always seemed a little bit uh, uh suspect to me but i think that is that is that that's sort of the form that the dialogue has taken and i think again it's like um different forms of of the same dialogue i was when i was listening to your podcast. I was thinking about. We've had discussions on this show about priests. Uh, one in particular, Father James Altman, who had a viral moment, uh, a couple viral moments, where in he was, you know, uh, saying that Catholics couldn't be Democrats and that if you voted for a Democrat, you're going to hell. Started spreading a bunch of like vaccine misinformation and among other crazy things. And we all were kind of like throwing our hands up because. It was a similar story where it was like, ah, oh, well, the local bishop has to be the one to to discipline him. But even though this guy can use these forms of media to reach people way beyond the bishop's, you know, geographical authority. Um, but in the end, he kind of was not silenced, but certainly taken off public pub, at a public view um, within like a year, year and a half. And so I was he even like, started a group campaign for canceled priests. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, wow. I don't know. He's been, he's been out of the news, like because of that action. Um, have we made progress? Does that mean? Cause at the time I was like, gosh, this took forever. And this guy, like, you know, like 4 million people on, in a YouTube video, but it wasn't 30 million every week. Wow. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, that's definitely, uh, <laughs> uh, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Um, I don't know. I think it's difficult to say. Are you, are you familiar with this, uh, um, media organization called the church militant 
Yes. We, uh, we are, yes. We <laughs> Which I think Coughlin would use that phrase, wouldn't he? I he thought did. I heard he, it in he, one of the snippets. Yes, he loved that phrase. George Milton, also, by the way, a Detroit area-based uh, religious God, media yeah. company. Um, What's going on up there? I, <laughs> that would take another podcast to, to unpack. Um, so, no, I don't think, I mean, I mean, again, religion is like this incredibly powerful tool for like building an audience and like religion plus mass media, which is something that they were figuring out in the 20s, um, is still something that we're that we're figuring out today. Like what is what does worship look like, uh, you know, over the Internet? And what kind of forms does worship take? And does it take political forms? And if it does, like, what are those political forms? There doesn't really seem to be a clear answer to my view, except that, again, I think we just have to be mindful of, like, not allowing our, um, you know, our our desire to, like, find purpose in in faith, which is which is very admirable and certainly something I support um, to, like, blind us to uh, sort of like larger, harsher truths about what that might mean. So one of the things that comes out in the podcast is that Coughlin was very much a creation of this radio era where it was new and people were trying to figure out how to use it and millions of people people were um, jumping onto this platform. Uh, and we have something similar today with social media. It's still somewhat of a wild west. We haven't a lot of, you know, the platforms themselves haven't figured out how to, you know, moderate content. Government doesn't know how to regulate it. And so people are kind of left to fend for themselves on these platforms. And I'm wondering if we have any lessons from history that could give our listeners some some things to look out for or or um warning signs when they're when they're following someone on on social media who may turn out to be a demagogue. Hmm. Yeah. And um, the problem of course has metastasized today because um the, the big social media companies are very good at building algorithms to keep showing you content uh, that that pushes you further and further into like ideological rabbit holes where there are always demagogues waiting for you. Um, so I think it's always, it's just always good to be mindful of your media diet and of like having a basic sense of media um, literacy, um, which of course, as, as media professionals, uh, we, we certainly advocate for, but it can be, it can be kind of difficult to communicate that to the broader public where, where sort of trust in, in trust in like media institutions is at an all time low. Uh, but the thing is people still, People still consume media, even when they say they don't trust it. What happens is that they just sort of erode um, their faith in ideas of like uh, universal verifiable truth and of like some ideas being too uh, radical, you know, for the public square. And so they just they just get their insights from more and more kind of spurious from, and know, dangerous. Charismatic figures. individuals instead of institutions. Right, right. Andrew, I'm curious what's been the response of uh, the Jewish community in and around Detroit? to this podcast? Oh, it's been very positive. It's actually been super gratifying for me um, to to put this out there. W one really interesting thing about this project for me is that it's it's brought different generations uh, together. And just speaking within the Jewish community, you know, I, I've heard from and, and interview on the podcast um, more senior members of the Detroit Jewish community who have very clear and like distinct memories of Father Coughlin himself or of listening to him or of their of their parents you know, talking about him and then and then sort of younger, younger Jews who are connecting much more with them with the modern day parallels. And, um, you know, there's a lot of anxiety within the Jewish community constantly over um, uh, sort of properly educating people about the Holocaust as uh, the final generation of survivors dies out. You know, within the next 10 years, there will be no more living survivors of the Holocaust. And and so one thing that a project like this can do is it really um, brings a lot of the dangers of like the, the, the lines of thinking that led to the Holocaust um, into the modern day in like a palpable, a palatable way um, and allows um, all, all kinds of different audiences, Jewish and non-Jewish alike, to to engage with it. Yeah. Andrew, I just want to say, like, thank you um, as a young Catholic for like I introducing me to this history. Um, I, I <laughs> I'm grateful for it uh and i'm and i'm glad that our listeners are going to be more well acquainted with it too um we do have one final question for you and we ask this well i guess if you could canonize one person living or dead catholic or not fictional or real who would it be and why you know we have actually a figure who i talk about briefly a historic figure from father Coughlin's time um keeping in the catholic world for a minute um her name was francis francis sweeney 
And she was a sort of crusading and like fiercely anti-fascist Catholic journalist um, in Boston in the early 40s, which was like a really bad time to and place to (laughs) to oppose Father Coughlin. And uh, and she and she really kind of stood stood athwart like the tide of uh, of sort of rabid Coughlinites and and really pushed pushed people and pushed the Catholic Church to recognize um, the evil that was perpetuating uh, in that in that space at the time. And she she died very young, um, which I understand is another, uh, uh, you know, regular sort of criteria of canonization um, often. And and so I would say, you know, at least in the Catholic sphere, um, Francis Sweeney. Francis Sweeney. I didn't know. I don't. Yeah, know we're going to have to look into her. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, again, the podcast is radioactive and you can find it wherever you're listening to this one. Um, Andrew, anything else you want to plug? No, that's it. Uh, thank you so much for giving me the space to, to talk about the show, and I hope people check it out and enjoy it. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. We, we watch the sun go down over the same old town Like so many times before we look at the same old stars Battle the same old wars like so many times before And I know that we're not perfect mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So we, as you have heard, are going to Italy in 2022. Um, Spots are starting to fill up, which we're really excited about. We've got an awesome itinerary. Um, We're going to link to it again in the show notes. So if you're thinking about coming, don't miss out. You know, get your spot reserved. Put in the registration form. Head to Select International Tours. We'll, We'll link to it in our show notes. And in other news... America marked an important anniversary this week, the one-year anniversary of the launch of our digital subscription. That's right. It's been a wild year. I remember, <laughs> where were you on January 6th last year, Ashley? Yeah. It, was a, it was a bit of a somber uh, anniversary for the country because uh, obviously the insurrection at the Capitol was happening. Um, but we'd been working for a long time to get ready to launch this, and I just sat down for a nap when I started checking Twitter and saw that uh, people were storming the Capitol. Yeah. Um, so, well, that is a somber anniversary. It's an important one for uh, for us in the Catholic media. Um, you know, we really appreciate all the people that have you know signed up and and contributed to uh, our comment section and written us letters and engaged with all the content we've been putting out. And this digital subscription, you know, it costs less than five dollars a month, but with you know everybody that reads America, you know, pitching in, it it helps us produce like all of this award-winning content, these, these essays, these spiritual reflections, the podcast you're listening to right now, the videos on our YouTube channel. We do a lot at America and we couldn't do it without the support of our subscribers. So thank you so much. We're really excited about uh, what we did last year and we've got a lot of cool stuff coming in 2022 and we can't do it without you. If you are already a digital subscriber, thank you so much. And if you're not, you can sign up at americamagazine.org slash subscribe to get the best in Catholic media. If I do say so myself. Yes. And to get even more content from Jesuitical, you can become a member of our Patreon community. We're going to be recording another new Patreon exclusive episode soon. And if you support Jesuitical at the $10 level, you automatically get a digital subscription so you can have unlimited access to all that other amazing content that we produce at americamagazine.org. So to join the Patreon community, you can go to patreon.com slash Media. Yes, and if you sign up there, you can join some esteemed peoples such as Miguel Ceres, Megan Dietzler, and Angela Leahy Esteve, uh, who signed up in the past couple of weeks to support the show on Patreon. Thank you guys so much. Um, again, it's patreon.com slash Media. And now we have, as one friend speaks to another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. What do you have, Zach? So I like a, uh, 
half of the country, it seems, uh, tested positive for COVID over break. And, you know, I vaccinated and boosted. And so I'm, you know, very grateful to have had mostly mild symptoms. Um, it, it was I'm very grateful for myself, but also um, both my brother-in-laws got it. My sister got it. Uh, my grandpa got it. Uh, my wife's grandpa got it. Uh, it. Like all in the same time frame. Um, so it was a weird, weird week in between Christmas and New Year's. Um, but I was probing a little bit just like what this was doing to me spiritually. Uh, and I, I feel like I was hearing a lot of uh, things that sounded like the evil spirit. Like, oh, there's, you know, nothing you could have done to prevent this or you were going to get it anyway. Um, or you uh, this is never going to end everyone is going to get this. So lots of like very like final words that were like, just like flowing around in my brain and um, felt very disorienting. I like a lot of Americans, you know, we did the, we did the things we're supposed to, which I, everyone should be doing, right. We got vaccinated. We, we got boosted. We're, you know, taking precautions uh, when it makes sense. And even still we're all getting it. And that's sort of like a very disorienting feeling for a lot of people, especially those of us that are, you know, trying to return back to normal life, but want to exercise some control over what's happening. Um, ultimately like things like diseases, um, it's not that they're inevitable, but a certain amount of suffering is going to come our way no matter how much we do to prevent it. Yeah, totally. Well, I, for one, I'm very happy that you have seemingly recovered. <laughs> yeah, I feel much better. I'm, I mean, the champagne okay. tastes good. So <laughs> yeah. uh, back to my old self, I suppose. <laughs> oh, oh man goodness yeah so i i'm you know i'm sure that people listening to this probably also had scares around this over the holidays so i uh, know that we're praying for you uh if you're listening and and keep us in your prayers too all right and onward into 2022 jesuitical is produced by sebastian gomes with production assistance from kevin jackson and kira hanlon our sound engineer is kevin christopher robles faith formation provided by father eric sundrup you can follow us on twitter at jesuitical show you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash jesuitical please subscribe to us on apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review jesuitical is a production of american media and is recorded usually in the William J. Loeschert studio in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bye.